0: Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I am your host Josiah, and today I am without my trusted co-host Byron. That's not Byron's fault; that's on me. I am trying to record a whole bunch of episodes right before a pretty momentous occasion occurs in a very short period of time. I will have a fourth son or a fourth child, third son. I have three sons and one daughter, and uh, life is kind of crazy. So because of that, we had some scheduling headaches, and unfortunately, I am flying solo today. But that's okay, because today, we have a pretty epic guest. Her name is Shauna. Shauna, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, Josiah, congrats on baby number four.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm mildly terrified, if I'm honest.
1: (laughs) I would be if I were you, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've heard this, because I know you have two kids, right?
1: Yeah, I've got two.
0: So they told me going from two to three was a cinch. And Uh the consummate, they, are liars.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anybody who says that bringing any number of children into the world is easy, just has no idea. Like, I don't know what they're smoking, but that just cannot be the truth. No,
0: not even a little bit. It's ridiculous. So going from three to four, I've had a numerous amount of people say three to four actually is kind of easier and the only reason i sort of have listened is because they said oh yeah people told us the two to three was easy and they were all liars i'm like okay so tell me about (laughs) the three to four thing and they said three to four was actually slightly easier for a very fun and unique reason and that's solely because as parents you have kind of lowered your expectations (laughs) (laughs) so you've you've kind of relaxed you've kind of mellowed out your parenting style enough to kind of just roll with it
1: so is that your philosophy on how many kids to have like you just keep having kids until no. people stop telling you it's going to be easy? No
0: way. This this <laughs> was so not to get to uh um well I'll just say this was not the plan we had. We were mm-hmm. not anticipating having four children and gotcha. it is also medically indicated that my wife should not have any more pregnancies. So this gotcha. this should be if if uh, medical intervention has anything to say about it, this will be our last. Pregnancy. This is
1: just a little blessing from Jesus. This is a
0: little <laughs> blessing. Yes, thank Good. you. God has a sense of humor, <laughs> and uh, it's we just laugh and we don't sleep very much. So beautiful. But anyway, Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being willing to to take part in this uh, this fun conversation about being a millennial pastor. Well, I guess in a moment we're going to really determine how much of a millennial you are by having some fun with that stereotype.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: But before we do that, could you give us uh, a little bit more about yourself so that can set the stage for, for maybe trying to determine how millennial you are? Can you give us your age and then where you're at? And then also, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us your current uh, ministerial status uh, position.
1: Yeah, so, well, I was born in 1984, so I kind of barely make the millennial cutoff. Okay. Um, And my name is Shauna, so I have to be a white girl born in the 80s. Um, That's pretty much the only way that happens. And. Yeah, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, with my husband Tim Gaines, who's awesome, and my two kids um, that are. Well, actually, my daughter turns six tomorrow, wow, which is weird. Um, And my son is seven, and uh, just a wild time. And yeah, I'm the lead pastor of the Trevecca Community Church of the Nazarene in Nashville, Tennessee, located on the campus of Trevecca Nazarene University. Um, Previously, I was a chaplain at Trevecca Nazarene University, and so, I still get to be in a ministry context with tons of college students and young, young adults, um, as well as being located right next to a retirement center and a healthcare center. And it's just a really diverse community to be in pastoral ministry. And I love it. Yeah. So,
0: you have generations clashing, not, well, maybe not clashing, uh, interacting. We, we could say it nicer, yeah. interacting on a regular basis.
1: On a regular basis. Absolutely. So, do you see, um, do you
0: see those generational stereotypes sometimes lived into you in the negative way, too?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, uh, generational stereotypes. I mean, there's always a conversation of, like, um, the eye rolling whenever anybody brings up the fact that maybe we should change out the uh, super gross, like, knockoff brand Folgers coffee, you know, like, (laughs) oh, well, (laughs) we've got to get a mustache barista in here to do a pour over um, you know, uh, that we can't touch the coffee. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's, there's some of those just kind of funner stereotypes. Um, but honestly, I think one of the cool things about being here on the Hill where you've got university students and, um, and a retirement center and, um, all that that means, uh, like there's a lot more in common with young, and these are almost like generation Z, right? Like our yeah. 18 year olds are, are really young. And then folks that are they're that quite older. Like there's a lot of really cool stuff in common, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's really neat to see some of those friendships form. Uh, so yeah, not all not all stereotypes prove true, but some of them actually make way for great friendships.
0: Well, on this episode, or on every episode, we we play fun with the stereotypes. And in every episode, we also apologize beforehand because we're going to sound really snarky on purpose when we (laughs) ask our guests. And I'm doing it by myself today. Normally, my co-host co-host shares this responsibility with me of sounding like a jerk um but we we like to confront the stereotypes because unfortunately far too many give into the stereotype and it's not just the the negative stereotypes about millennials but it's also every generation has some sort of stereotype level against it yeah and it's always you know detrimental to community and and just communal living to live into a stereotype because that reduces that person to just a thing Um, because that's what we do. We label things, but people have names. And so it's really important to actually get to know a person's name. But to really hit that, that point home, we're going to reduce you to a label for a bit. Is that cool?
1: Absolutely. Bring it on.
0: Okay, so let's play How Millennial Are You? so here's how this works Sean. I'm really sorry beforehand every episode we apologize normally we apologize for something silly we said in the past episode and I'm sure in the past episode I said something silly that I should apologize for but I'm genuinely apologizing to you because I'm gonna sound like a real jerk
1: which can I just say is such a millennial thing to do right like <laughs> Assume that you've offended someone, right. which is the worst thing to do in the world I right. so apologize ahead of time. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So there's going to be two parts to this game. Part one is the actual stereotypes themselves. So we're going to give you three questions and we're going to score you out of three um, to determine just how millennial you are based on stereotypes.
1: Okay. The
0: second part of this game is the headline portion of the game. So to really drive the point home, we then will give you three different opportunities And you're going to have three different headlines within each opportunity. Two of those headlines are fake headlines that we made up about millennials. But one is a very real headline. Okay. So we'll get to determine... What
1: I have to pick which one is real.
0: You get to pick which one is real, and okay. we would love to hear your reasoning why, but it helps cool. us kind of understand how these stereotypes permeate pop culture, media, news, and all that stuff. So Cool.
1: This is like a game from the show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I don't know if you listen to that, but I'm super excited. It makes me feel like I'm talking to Peter Sagal. So Perfect.
0: Go Good. Okay. So part one is stereotypes. Here we go. This is rude, okay. but like, hashtag sorry, not sorry, I guess. I don't know. All right. <laughs> Question one. Shauna, how did your parents finally get you to move out since, you know, most millennials never leave home (laughs) and stuff?
1: Oh, man. And so I really answer then. Yeah, you you really have to – you you
0: need to respond somehow.
1: Oh, okay. Well, so I guess I'm not super millennial then because I left when I was 18 years old and my parents joked when they were dropping me off for college that – I would never look back and never come home, and they were kind of right. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that was it. Like, dropped me off for college and didn't shed a tear, which broke my parents' heart.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: <laughs> that was it. I know. So
0: you actually stone re- cold. You really stone cold. You really didn't. Um, you really didn't have to be coaxed out of the house. You just peaced out.
1: No, I didn't even come back for summers. Which wow, was, it's like a mother's kind of nightmare, right? But so, so yeah
0: and we'll get to where you went to school, um, later, but I, am pretty sure I know you went to school and I, there's a good reason why you probably didn't ever want to leave because it's a beautiful campus. I
1: know, it is.
0: <laughs> so shoot. Okay. Oh, for one so far. And for the record, for I actually, I actually left the house for college and didn't ever really come back. I had one internship where I was actually interning back home and I hated it. I oh, hated goodness. it. So I then interned, in anywhere else I could get an internship. So I didn't have to go back home. So gotcha. Same thing. Uh, I I guess I'm not very millennial in that way. So, so far, oh for one, not super millennial (laughs) question. Number two, though, we'll see, we'll get you with something maybe, or maybe not. I don't know. We'll find out. So Shauna, if you're honest, when you start to feel sick, are you Mm -hmm. grabbing an essential oil or some sort of over the counter medicine?
1: Oh man. When I'm feeling sick,
0: or even if um, you just start to feel that first little uh oh. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I do have essential oils in my cupboard, yes. um, which, if I'm totally honest, was bought purely on peer pressure.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> I that might be what a whole do. That might be a whole other version of millennialism. Them. That might be yeah. a, that might be millennial <laughs> enough by itself. You don't even yes. use it, but you just bought it just in case. Yes.
1: But I do have a mason jar that when I'm getting sick, I make myself a weird concoction of things that include ginger and lemon. And I put it in a mason jar. So maybe that's kind of millennial.
0: Okay. I think we have to count that because basically anything that's even remotely close, the stereotype supercharges into being that self-fulfilling thing, right?
1: right? So
0: we'll call that one for two.
1: Got it. Got it.
0: Question number three. These haven't been terrible, right? I mean, I haven't been no. too much of a jerk. We, sometimes we're no. really rude. So, <laughs> okay. Question number three. One of these has to go for the rest of your life. Is it LaCroix or pumpkin spice lattes?
1: Oh, definitely get rid of pumpkin spice lattes, <laughs> but do not take my
0: LaCroix. <laughs> Okay, so this one's a trick, because no matter what, you're admitting that you love one of these things, and they're both apparently very millennial in nature, so... Wait,
1: a pumpkin spice latte? Are you kidding me? I feel like you definitely can be a 60-year-old dude rocking the khakis and loving a pumpkin spice latte. Of
0: course you can. But if if enough millennials do it, it's just an unfairly leveled stereotype (laughs) against them. Stereotypes. See,
1: see, don't you think like matcha is much more millennial than pumpkin spice latte?
0: Absolutely. Or just pour overs or any number of other things. Yes, 100%. But that's Kombucha. the na- Yeah, that's the nature of stereotypes though, is they're not really gotcha. rooted in in too much reality. So
1: Well, then expose away Josiah.
0: <laughs> so LaCroix. LaCroix <laughs> is is something you're a fan of, huh?
1: Yeah, you'd have to rip it out of my cold dead hand.
0: So do you have a supply on hand?
1: I do. Blackberry, cucumber.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So is the best. I, I am not a, a stereotype as a as that um would state like I don't like Lacroix yeah. at all but it's really funny because I get Lacroix advertisements all the time it's it's crazy I mean obviously oh, there's something to the marketing to our age yeah. group and and that sort of a thing but Um, we have this, and this is going to sound super millennial, but I just don't care. We have our groceries delivered because I have too many (laughs) kids to go shopping and yeah, you do. Yeah. And, uh, my wife is the one that's the primary breadwinner. So I am normally doing the house spouse duties. And so Mm. I, uh, I have opted for delivery, especially since there's fun little ways you can get the delivery to happen for free. And sometimes one of the free delivery options is buy enough LaCroix and we'll bring you your groceries. I'm like, oh my goodness. No way. No joke. No way. No joke. So it's pretty crazy how that's not just a stereotype, but that's actually, that one's probably very rooted in reality because millennials must absolutely buy just tons of LaCroix. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Man, they got you pegged.
0: Yeah, well, they got our generation pegged. So I guess I'm going to call you two for three. You might be stereotypical okay. in some way, but cool. not not some. Well, you have essential oils, so I don't know. Well,
1: I know, no.
0: that one's an iffy. But you you definitely left your house. Oh, but I moved out of coaxing. my parents' house. Yeah, you yes. left without yeah. coaxing, so that was this. That's that one didn't count. But you have essential oils, yeah. and you drink LaCroix. So sure, you're a stereotype.
1: But don't you think part of the stereotype of millennials staying in their houses is that parents don't really want them to leave anymore. <laughs>
0: well, that's the whole point. Right? That's the whole point is that so much of this is like, oh my goodness, why are millennials so entitled? And Or, or why are they so this? Why are they so that? It's like, who taught them that? Like who's actually influencing their life decisions? Who is actually influencing how would the adults they become? So if a parent wants to sit there and complain, my kid never moved out, then I would ask. But him,
1: it's really because you need your like, Netflix shopping
0: buddy. You know? I know exactly. <laughs> Let's be honest about that. Have you enabled that? Have you <laughs> right. asked for that yourself? Are you? Because there was that story of that guy in New York that his parents took him to court to have him move out. Like, oh gosh, I, and it was a ridiculous story. And I have to assume, which I know it's, a, it's an assumption, it's bad, but I would like to believe that those parents just maybe didn't want to be the tough parents and say, "Ah, uh, hey, little Johnny, can you move out now? You're thirty. And instead they took them to court. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So I I don't know how much I can really say the blame lies in the millennial, but um, they obviously have some blame. They, they should probably move out. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch of cultural significance in there because if you're in so many other countries, Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, European countries, um, there's multi-generational families and that's just the way of life. So,
1: yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't know. Anyways, you're, you're stereotype, so that's established. You're a millennial. Owned
1: it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so part two is headlines. So now, okay. now we're going to see how well you can weed out the fake stereotypical headlines as opposed to the very, very, very real headlines that are out there for people to read. Got it. All right, so here's, here's uh, opportunity number one. I'm going to give you three headlines. Tell me which one you think is real and why. All right, forget generational stereotypes. Baby boomers are just as addicted to smartphones as millennials. Headline number two, millennial women hoping Ellen is their Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Headline number three, not my kids. Millennials more likely to untraditionally name their kids.
1: Huh. Okay, so it's not the last one because millennials are naming their kids like old school traditional things like... Opal and Winfrey and things like that. Um, and I can attest to although, that
0: because I've been poring over baby names.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Our daughter's name is Evelyn. Like, that's rocking the 1910s. Uh-huh. Um, Olivia was
0: like the number one girl name when, right. when we were about to have a daughter.
1: So I'm leaning towards number one that uh, it's the, the iPhone thing because I think that my – Parents' generation probably has like less phone etiquette than my generation does. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Definitely quite don't always know the appropriateness of emoji
0: use. That is so Um, great. Uh, And it's right. You're right. That's okay. Good. Totally got it. So. Um, it's a, it's actually a Forbes article, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> and it, it's this report of just general screen time. So that can encompass a whole host of things yeah. on a smartphone. But um, it's it's basically the, the average boomer will spend five hours on their smartphone a day, um, which is basically just as much time as a millennial will spend on their you time. Do you know
1: how much time you spend?
0: How much time I, I do have screen time on my iPhone and I actually
1: yeah you track it
0: yeah I have tracked it but I can't remember what it is right now I, I don't think I'm at the five hour um, a day mark by any means I think oh man I, I don't know what I'm at though so that's a good question do you know so what you're last
1: at? week yeah yeah I track it pretty closely because I try to really keep it like down but uh, I, I hit the hour mark last week and was feeling really good about that
0: Wow I, I think know. I'm more than an hour.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. Interesting. Well, and what's most curious is that, you know, we get a reputation for social media and stuff. But according to this Forbes article, boomers are neck and neck with us on every one of the social media outlets. Like, I totally
1: believe it. The
0: one thing that maybe we do more is like podcasting, which is ironic, right? Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, but one one thing that boomers do far more on their phones than we do is checking their email, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah. But like Facebook. Instagram, um, YouTube, Twitter—those are actually fairly neck and neck, which is weird.
1: Yeah, and I've taken all of those off my phone. So Look probably at
0: you—that's
1: why I've whittled it down. Look <laughs> at that.
0: Yeah, I know. I I should do the same thing. I yeah. have enough on my hands to worry about and not having a and smartphone. You've
1: got four kids now, Joseph. I think you need to delete some apps.
0: I think I should. <laughs> I'm going to delete some apps. You're inspiring uh, me. All right. Delete
1: apps, add children. Yeah,
0: that's yeah, it's a way of life, I guess. It's the new millennial stereotype. <laughs> All right, question or set of headlines number two. Here we go. Millennials refrain from Wall Street due to the 2008 downturn. This is the second one. Why millennials are facing financial struggles we've never seen before. And then the third headline is house buying among millennials at record lows compared to past generations.
1: Oh, it definitely has to be the last one, right? Why is that? Well, because everyone that I know is like sharing a townhouse with four people. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just, it just feels right. And the other two, the wording was very ambiguous.
0: Mm. Well, here's the deal. The last one might actually be a reality, but ah. it, it's a made up headline that okay. we made up. The, okay. the real one is why millennials are facing financial struggles we've never seen before. And so, okay. it's it's born up again, I think that yeah, it's another Forbes article, which is funny, Forbes. Weirdly enough, so I have an I have a news alert for all things millennial headlines. Yeah. And so Forbes and Business Insider and all these other market watch, you know, groups, they churn out millennial headlines because they were the largest generation population-wise we're about to be passed up by Gen Z. Um, But we're we have outpaced as far as just the size of how many of us there are boomers. And so obviously they have to care about that because we're the average age of a millennial now is 30, I think. So we're technically adulting. But the article basically really focuses on how we're the first generation to be handcuffed by insane levels of student debt. So we we are the fun generation that we were told go to college and get a degree. Oh, by the way, it costs this much, and then you'll get a job that pays this much, which is just basically yeah. the story of my life. So,
1: <laughs> oh man, and so many others. Yeah, working with college students here, it's um, you really do have to sell them on the fact that like these years are more about your formation than about your earning potential Mm -hmm. um because it honestly is just probably not going to pay out like you think it's going to but if you think about it as your formation then you know worth it
0: yeah and not to say that i would probably have done it differently but basically according to this Forbes article we are now sitting as collectively as a generation on 1.5 trillion dollars in student debt man which is crazy that's nuts all right so you're one for two one for two Let's go for the, the third, and we'll see if you redeem yourself and you knock out knock out of the park. Of the park or, so the, the best we've got, I think oh, we had Zach Hunt on a couple episodes back, and he got – Oh,
1: Zach Hunt. You know, he's – uh yeah, here in Nashville. He's a member of our church.
0: Awesome. Well, Super cool. Well, he got two for three, I believe. No one's gotten three for three, so don't feel bad. Oh, man. Okay. But he – I think he got two for three. I think he's basically – some people don't get any of them, but I think gotcha. he's the best uh, okay, at this so
1: – you- so you're saying that at least I can feel better than some, someone else. You can there, tie but. for
0: first. So, I mean, you <laughs> might as well have a participation trophy thrown in there okay. for the fun of it, too. All right. So this is the, your third chance. Headline one. Post Malone is post-millennial. Millennials listen to music of their teenage years. Headline number two. People aged 50 and older are even more addicted to Netflix's original shows than millennials and teens. Hmm. Headline number three, streaming services like Spotify and Pandora credit millennials for their success.
1: Man, they all seem very plausible. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go with the middle one uh, about Netflix. Why? Well, because um, all of the episodes of Friends and Gilmore Girls are on that thing. (laughs) (laughs) I just know a lot of folks that love to binge watch the old stuff.
0: Mm. So, that's right. I'm wrong. No, oh, you're right. Really? You got it. Yes. You you're two for three. So,
1: oh man.
0: <clears throat> I kind of foreshadowed this. This is a, a yeah. bin- business insider article and it's true people age 50 and older are even more addicted to Netflix. Um the older you are, the more this is their research. The older you are, the more likely you are to watch Netflix originals, new research from Nielsen suggests. People age 50 and up who watch Netflix in the U.S. spend a greater share of their time on the platform watching the Netflix originals than their younger counterparts do. Um, and just like you said, younger audiences may be more drawn to licensed stuff like Gilmore Girls, apparently, because they're discovering it for the first time. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's very interesting. They break it down um, based on, like, where, whether they're watching Netflix originals or non-originals, how many. And it's, it's very interesting. Very, very gotcha. interesting. So you, so you, you're at... Part one, you're a stereotype, so congrats, I guess we'll we'll get you a participation <laughs> trophy. Okay. Part two, you're also I don't know, I guess we call it hashtag woke about your own stereotypical yeah. perceptions.
1: <laughs> awesome. I'd love um I'd love a like a, a gift for that, like maybe a little desk succulent.
0: Absolutely, we could I think totally that'd be
1: appropriate. Or
0: you know, we've really played around with, and it looks. I mean, we, I actually, I'm. This isn't snarky. This is authentic. I really did this. I looked at the possibility of avocado participation trophies, (laughs) and unfortunately, there's nothing out there that you know it's manufactured for that so if i ever did that i would have to figure out how to actually cast in bronze and avocado and do it all by hand so (laughs) (laughs) but we'll work on that all right we'll work on that for you so as as stated before this fun little game break thing we like to have fun with the stereotype because we feel like if people operate in a stereotypical fashion it's disingenuous and it honestly just denies humanity Because if you just operate under a stereotype, you're basically reducing that person to just a thing. And to actually get to know a person, you probably need to start with knowing their name and not reducing them to a stereotype. The more we play these games, the more we talk about these stereotypes, the more we realize, oh, guess what? Not everyone fits the stereotype exactly. Uh, We had a different format where we used to just ask 10 questions that were just the stereotype. And only one person answered every question in a millennial way. Like, only wow. only one person. And you actually, I think you know this person. Do you know Mo, Mo Smith?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> Which is, this is the irony. Mo technically is not a millennial. He is, oh. he's too old. Yeah, <laughs> okay. he,
1: he's an old man. Yeah,
0: he is an old man. So according to, to peer <laughs> research, he's actually too old to be a millennial. But yeah. he was 10 for 10. We've never had a guest that, that was that high, so... Oh,
1: maybe maybe it's because he's obsessed with wanting to seem like a millennial until he studies up. You that, know,
0: that may be something we actually pointed out to him in that episode. <laughs> he he didn't necessarily deny it, but gotcha. But anyways, we would like to get to know you a little bit more. So, with every guest, we ask some questions about what they're doing in in church and all that stuff. Before we get to that. We kind of want to know a little bit about your background, maybe a little bit about your education, past ministry experiences, um, and just what makes you you. Cool. So where did you go to school?
1: Uh, I went to Point Loma Nazarene University for undergraduate in San Diego, California, and uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City after that. And I'm currently a student, actually, uh, here in Nashville, working on my Doctor of ministry at Lipscomb University.
0: Man, you're just a glutton for punishment,
1: huh? I am. It's so true.
0: Oh, my goodness. So I went to Loma, too, and we were given Zach grief because in his book, Unraptured, he was talking about how much he wanted to go to Point Loma. But I think I can't remember exactly what he called himself, but basically he said he was too much of a coward to leave Tennessee or something like that, <laughs> Yeah. which is humorous. But um, yeah, we we're giving him <laughs> grief, but then also kind of saying, you know what? You might have been able to focus more if you stayed in Tennessee, because honestly, I don't know about you, but I had a lot of trouble focusing on my reading when I lived in Young or Hendricks because basically the Pacific Ocean is like 100 yards away.
1: Yeah, but honestly, like when you're 18 years old, you're going to have trouble focusing if you're in, you know, catacombs or so. I mean, it's, it's like there's not an easy way to focus when you're that age.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I was very ADD. I still am. Being 18 only exacerbated the problem. But it was always very tempting to just go and try to learn how to surf instead of go to my 730 degree class, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) And you've held a a number of ministry positions in your your tenure, in in your adulting. So what are some of the different things you've done in ministry?
1: Yeah, so I actually, um, gosh, I think my first sort of like unofficial position was working with young adults at a church in Antioch, uh, Kansas, or the Antioch Church of Nazarene in Kansas, um, outside of Kansas City, and um, then was a youth pastor at a United Methodist church in the Chicagoland area. And uh, then my husband and I were actually co-lead pastors of the Bakersfield First Church of the Nazarene in Bakersfield, California, which is how I know Mo Smith, because Bakersfield is my hometown,
0: Mm -hmm. and he's from
1: Bakersfield. It's a great place. Um, And uh, yeah, then headed out here to Nashville, where I was university chaplain and now um, lead pastor at Tribeca Community Church.
0: It's funny, you say Bakersfield, we have an interesting connection, because for like for a minute I'm going to use millennial slang for a, for a, for a hot minute
1: for a hot minute
0: your dad was my boss um and then he was everyone's boss <laughs> and so, <laughs> so i came in like i don't even know he wasn't there for yeah, more than a, right. a couple months so i didn't actually really get to work for him that long i mean he became ds seemed like a couple months after I started working at Olive Knolls. Um, but yeah, your dad is the DS of Central California. And yeah. I started my ministry tenure, um, sort of started my ministry tenure under <laughs> under your dad, which is hilarious to think about because, yeah, he was gone in a blink of an eye. Yeah. So,
1: He's great. He's he's pretty awesome.
0: So you Final actually millennials
1: are always on the lookout for good district superintendents to work with and and he's on the list. He's pretty awesome. Well,
0: I was gonna say you worked for him, so I guess would you recommend yeah.
1: that? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. He's the best.
0: So I don't know how often that happens to be a lead pastor or a co pastor with your spouse with your parent being the district superintendent, but that's interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. I can th- I think maybe Olivia and Dustin were on um Olivia's dad's district for a little bit, for a hot minute. For a hot minute. Um, yeah. So was
0: I sure actually, which is interesting. Yeah, I oh. I was I was a youth pastor in the on the district Randy Craker was DS, so. Yeah, cool. That's funny. Well, awesome. So you you know around you, you've been around the Nazarene denomination for a bit then.
1: Yes, since I was born.
0: Great. Well, with every guest, we like to dive deeper into kind of their philosophies, their beliefs, their theologies, what, what they think about this thing called church. So we're going to do that now. Um, and we're going to start with with some questions about the church. The reason we like to kind of ask our guests their thoughts on church is because even though there's lots of stereotypes out there about our generation, there's also some pretty hard facts on it. We may be. I haven't, I haven't heard it written in this exact way, but I've done a lot of research. We may be the first generation that a majority has left the church. So most of the research, like Barna and Pew, they'll put it at 60 to 70% of millennials have disengaged from the church when they are old enough to, to do so. So as a result, <clears throat> we, we think it's important for us to be talking about what the church is. So in your own words, what is this thing called church that so many millennials seem to have left.
1: Yeah. You know, and even the, the phrase millennials leaving the church, I think kind of begs the question, what is it that are <laughs> leaving, right? Like uh, exactly uh, what uh, like ontological status does the church have? What, what is it? And uh, I think if, if we're thinking about the church as an institution, then yeah, we can say millennials are leaving the institution of the church. Um, and certainly, sadly, like there are a lot of millennials also just walking away from Christian faith entirely. Um, uh, but if we think about the church, not so much as an institution or even so much as a collection of people, um, then, uh, I, I think a better way to maybe think about the church is to think about the church as an event, uh, right. An event of the kingdom of God on earth. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, sorry, somebody's texting me right now and I'm trying to record this on the phone. Um, yeah, but if we were to think about the, the church rather as an event of the kingdom of God erupting here um, on earth as it is in heaven, uh, then it's not necessarily the same as, you know, an institution that we have to secure and have to, um, you know, try to basically like keep as many millennials in as we, as we possibly can, but rather we expect God to do a new and surprising thing in every generation. Um, and there is this eventfulness about the life of the church, um, that it is something that is happening, um, and, uh, and not just, a, a yeah, kind of brick and mortar institution. So, um, I don't know if that's helpful, but I, I, whenever I hear that language about like, oh, millennials are leaving the church, I imagine somebody like, um, trying to, uh, kind of hoard up something in a box and, and, you know, <laughs> keep all of the frogs from jumping out or something. And, um, yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, if we think about the church as being much more eventful um, and, and the kingdom of God breaking in in surprising ways, uh, then it perhaps might make us even a little less fearful um, about what that looks like. And then to be expecting God to do a new thing in this generation um, that might look a little bit different than institutional church.
0: But that might require the more institutionalized church or maybe what I would call the established church to reevaluate how they do church would that be fair to say
1: yeah um and how they do church is um you know I, so I, I think we get hung up on some of these ideas that um and in, in even a lot of folks i talk with uh about you know how do we how do we keep again it feels like how do we keep millennials in the church we got to do something different right don't we have to we've got to have a new service we've got to. Um, you know brand it differently and get on the social media and (laughs) yeah gotta get a good
0: graphic designer right
1: yeah yeah and um and and don't get me wrong there's something to um even like the the thought of uh cultural linguistics right The like translation of the gospel in every generation and there is a sense in which in the same way that missionaries go out and you learn deeply a language and context in order to then translate the good news of the gospel in a way that is truly good news in that context and language, I think in the same way that there, there is a new kind of discovering of that um, cultural linguistic of the millennial generation and that kind of translation that's necessary. Um, but, the, but then there's a, another sense in which, um, I don't know, that like doing church um, differently is, uh, you know, the the same as just yeah having a service with a more contemporary band and and playing the songs that the young kids like um, mm-hmm. is 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 the same as truly the like the life of the church embracing the gift that is every younger generation mm-hmm. um, and then allowing that generation to truly change the makeup of who we are and expect that there's going to be new birth in the church, like new life in the church, um, in every generation.
0: So I have a uh, very, very grace-filled leadership on my board at the church I'm at. I mean, I say that because I, that's basically why I'm even here is that they were willing to take a risk on <clears throat> what I would lovingly refer to myself as, as a bargain bin pastor, because yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, and we've heard it time and time again on on this podcast. Most of the time, a young pastor is not going to get a shot at a really well established, large, healthy church. Most of the time, yeah. it's a smaller church. It's so a church that has some financial issues. It's a church in crisis, um, so on and so forth. But my my church, you know they they could fit one of those bills probably w- when they had called on me to to entertain the idea of coming. But we've had lots of meaningful discussion. Since then they've helped me grow. they're very experienced people they're they're professionals they They have lots of grace, and they have forgiven a lot because i've basically had to do a lot of learning on the job. But One of the interesting conversations we've had is centered around this because one of the motivations they had was they wanted to engage the next generation more fully, and they thought a great place to start would be to hire someone from the the next generation
1: <laughs> right yeah,
0: and so one of the times we're having Sort of an impromptu strategic vision casting dialogue. Uh, I had someone say, "Man, I drive past, and we have a world-class disc golf course not a mile from our church, which is oh, just awesome. awesome. So it's literally one of the best in the state, and we have people from all over that'll come. In that little corridor, the road that runs through it will just be slammed. It'll be you know, all these easy ups, all these vans, all these people parked, and just." hundreds if not sometimes thousands of people playing disc golf on a Sunday morning. And so the conversation was, man, I wish they would just, why won't they come here? Why won't they come here instead of yeah. going over there? And I wanted in my head to say, cause that's way more fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> obviously if you ask them why they're not here and why they're over there is because they're going to say, it's just a lot more fun over here. And so my, instead of saying that right away, you know, we continued the dialogue and at some point I simply said, You know what? What if instead of asking the question, why don't they come here? Because that kind of just paints a picture of our end goal only being butts and pews on Sunday mornings. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, What if instead we said, hey, this Sunday, we're going to go there and we're just going to give out free lemonade because it's hot and they want to have lemonade when they're playing disc golf and i could just kind of see the wheels start to spin but that's i think what i mean when i say do church differently is mm. is it shouldn't be this formula like oh well if we get louder music or faster music that'll be the fix like no there, there probably needs to be a fundamental shift and if you if you look at the early church uh, the thing that probably keeps me up at night most as a, as a young pastor is man what they talk about in acts two when they gathered mm-hmm. they broke bread they they prayed together they fellowshipped, and they read the the bible i guess is what we could say today it wasn't in the same version then that's it that was all that was definitive of i guess what we would call the church yeah so that can be done in lots of creative and interesting ways so yeah but it's this is such a nuanced conversation that i think we desperately need to have because so much is made of hey millennials have left the church it's like okay but it's a little more complicated than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like the way you describe that. Like there is a, a breathing in and a breathing out, um, right. Of the, the life of the church and the Holy spirit. And mm-hmm. that there's a sense in which we come and we gather together and there is this collective breathing in receiving the gifts of God for the people of God in that time and space. And then there's a breathing out where the church is breathed back out. Um, and for us to, to not think that church is only what happens in that hour. Um, but that there's eventfulness in the life of the church, um, constantly always. And where is the church being breathed out in local communities? Um, yeah, on, on disc golf courses and, (laughs) and wherever else it might be. I think that's great.
0: Yeah, it's it's a fun little goal I have. One day, instead of (laughs) instead of uh, gathering, we're gonna we'll still gather, just not in the same way, and Mm -hmm. we'll have an expressed uh, event filled purpose for what we're gathering for. So, so with every guest, we not only want to talk about what church is, because that seems to be a worthwhile conversation, but we want to continue that conversation with asking why you aren't the stereotype. Why haven't you left um mm. whatever that might mean for 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 our purposes here, but stereotypically speaking you're you're in a minority um group of those that have stayed, and why is that am i <laughs> i mean, mean I
1: mean truly like would you say that a majority of folks that actually grew up in the church in North America have left because when you say majority? You're talking about over 50. I feel like we've become so freaked out by this narrative. And, and sure, you know, it, like statistically there's more leaving and the rise of the nuns, um, mm-hmm. you know, the rise of people who indicate they have no religious preference or background. But um, even it's interesting that you ask, like, that I'm, the, you know, the minority or, or some kind of unicorn that, that stayed, <laughs> okay. I think really speaks to like how fearful we are, right? Like, Absolutely. We are freaked out. Um, feeling like there's just going to be this max, mass exodus. And I feel like the anxiety that that has produced in the church has been really unhealthy. Um, this sense of like, man, we've got to do. So- and, and don't get me wrong, I think sometimes anxiety produces good things that like it can <laughs> drive us to change.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but when all of our changes are made out of an anxious spirit of like trying to preserve our own life. Um, is that really reflective of the God who gave life up on the cross? Right? Is that really reflective of um, the uh, Christological uh, vision, like the the kenotic love that's constantly outgiving, that's outpouring? Um, I just I, I wish I saw more peace in the church, like trusting that the Spirit of God that's been at work um, from the beginning of time, hovering over the waters and ordering life out of chaos that the same spirit of God is at work here and now in this time and place. And I think if we were to loosen our grip, uh, like our anxious grip, whether it's trying to figure out like how we keep millennials in the church or um, figure out how we keep church the way that we want it. Right. Because I see both of those dynamics and leadership in the church. There's some that just want to figure out how they preserve the models of church that they like. And, um, And then others that are in a much in in still in a very kind of like a modern way, like no, let's just change up all the forms and change for the sake of change, and um, so that we can attract the young kids. And I don't know if either of those are really truly a responding to um, the spirit's call to to go and love a new generation. Um, I think that you know that sometimes is just more undergirding um, or, or uh, yeah, speaking to some of the, the anxiety that's undergirding both of those responses. Um, and I don't know that we make the best decisions when we're anxious. <laughs> no. I think we make much better decisions in the church when we're really at peace.
0: So is peace, is, is that peace of surpasses understanding part of why you're, you're still around them?
1: Oh, oh, right. That was the question, huh? Yeah. Um. Oh, you know, I um am so deeply grateful. I mean, man, I just feel like the church has. um, I'm so deeply rooted in it, and and so grateful for all that. Yeah, and and I think that there's a sense, too, I would not know who Jesus was without the church, Josiah. Like, I wouldn't know Jesus.
0: Which is significant.
1: Oh, it's everything. And and in a really true way. Not only, like, I'm so, like, thanks a lot, folks, for telling me about this guy. Um, But truly, I would not be able to look upon the face of my risen savior without the body of believers that shows me who he is. So there's a prayer that I pray with my kids most days of just like gratitude and then a prayer um, of uh, supplication that we, we say, thank you, Lord. Um, oh gosh, now I hope I'm going to get the order right, but we say, thank you, Lord, <laughs> for um, giving us Um, food to eat, a house to live in, a family to love us, and a church to show us Jesus. And then Mm -hmm. we say, and Lord, please be with people who need food to eat, a house to live in, a family to love them, and a church to show them Jesus. And I think there's this real sense that like the church shows me Jesus and and is the body of Christ um, in a very real way. And so like I mean that. I would not know Jesus Without the church, um, and I also wouldn't know a whole lot of you know brokenness and ugliness and all kinds of other things. I <laughs> and yeah, it's amazing how this you know same people that can show you the face of Jesus can also remind you of you know the Antichrist. Yeah, and uh, and yet, like my overwhelming gratitude for the face of Jesus um, is what. It keeps me hanging on um so yeah
0: so that must be the thing we we asked her ask yes what they love most about about church i i guess it might be safe to assume that when the church shows the world jesus that might be something you love most about it
1: yeah and you know when i was discerning the call um to to leave chaplaincy ministry and and head back into the local church um that was really hard i loved being university chaplain it's just like man, such an amazing, in some ways you think like what a dream ministry gig to get to work just with college students to not answer to a church board, (laughs) uh, you know, have like all the resources in ministry and bring in these cool speakers and amazing chapel bands and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I just couldn't get away from this call and tug back to local church. And I was talking with, um, uh, someone who was just kind of giving some spiritual guidance and, Um, and advice. And and she said, you know, it sounds like you'd be taking on a lot of risk to move back into the local church. What would make it worth the risk? And I burst out without even thinking just from this deep place within my soul. I said, babies and old people and baptisms and dedications and weddings and funerals (laughs) and poor people and um, the handicap, you know, like just the whole, I just kind of burst out naming off all of these things. And like, this is all the life of the church. Um, and it's the life of the church that I love. And I don't know if I could put my finger on one thing, but I think yeah. the one thing maybe is just that the church is all of it. And, um, and is that vessel of salvation that kind of holds it all. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because you, you kind of touched on the irony of it because why you're still apart, and just the life of the church being this beautiful thing that oftentimes shows us Jesus. Sometimes it shows us the opposite of Jesus. So I don't know if there's just one thing. Cause some of our guests just laugh when I ask, what do you think mm-hmm. might need some fixing in the church? I don't know if there's just one thing you can pinpoint, <laughs> but if there's maybe like mm-hmm. the thing that for you is the, we really need to be better at, or we really need to stop. What might that be for you?
1: Mm-hmm. You know I think uh something that would be super helpful and and really simple, like an easy go to fix um is for churches um leadership bodies um to eat together and with the poor more often and regularly hmm. um or I, and I should say to eat together. And making sure that together in includes the poor at the table, <laughs> because mm-hmm. sometimes we we think about like together very exclusively, but um, yeah, I think that that would change, man that'd be a game changer um, and back to that acts two vision um yeah. i I think that just that that practice of of eating together at a very diverse table um and that that changes the way that we think about a lot of other things and and one of the things that I try to always ask the people that I'm working with and working around is, is who's not at the table, you know? Um, Well, you wrote, you wrote
0: a book called a seat at the table. So that's appropriate. I would say. True.
1: True. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But to always look at the table and I think about like the, the parable of the wedding feast and, or not, not the wedding feast, but the feast where nobody who's invited ends up coming. And so, yeah, they say, well, then go out to the highways and the byways, and and there's a sense of like, there's got to be, we've got to always be filling the table, and uh, and in many ways, like I know that the term evangelical right now is is, is super uncouth and and uh, and under uh, a lot of scrutiny, and, and for good reason. I I get all that, but like, isn't that the the euangelion? Isn't that like the the heart of evangelicalism? The sense that like there's got to constantly be a greater welcome to the table. Um, and I, I don't know, I think those kinds of practices really shape and change us when we uh, are sitting at tables, but always with an empty chair wondering like, okay, well, who could be here next week? Um, who's not represented? What voices are we not hearing? I think that really changes us.
0: Yeah, because the opposite, I guess if we, we don't put that into practice enough, the opposite becomes very exclusive communities gathering. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> a little maybe too homogenous. There's lots of interesting uh I don't know political or just mentions that I see in news or on social media. Where, well, this is why that group isn't doing well. There's too much of of a mixture of different types of people, or that's why yeah. there's so much crime, or that and there's something that's maybe a default, and maybe just maybe mostly in this country, I don't know, but we don't seem to like to be with the other very much. It, it seems to be that we would default, and it's probably just human nature. We would rather. Be with our own kind, I suppose you would say. Um, But that's not even a little bit what Jesus calls for us to be about. One of the most, I I guess, famous, well-known parables confronts that, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan where jesus is challenged and he's like what's the most important law and the guy's trying to trap him obviously and jesus asks him a question because that's what jesus does and jesus is is pretty legit with his always asking questions to questions um but yeah love god with your everything love your neighbor as yourself but who's my neighbor and he tells a story about how this one guy Who shouldn't be the neighbor is the one that showed the most love and how those two had bad blood had the the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other but the Samaritans the one that actually took pity on him and loved on him and even forked over money like actually gave of his own finances to help with this Jewish person that he should have disliked greatly but in our own churches today you know it's just sometimes they're neighborhood churches sometimes they're uh, you know, there are commuter churches, but a certain type of commuter comes there. Sometimes we just don't do super well with having a diverse representation of the body of Christ. And one of the things that we've had numerous guests tell us, which is just, it's silly that this needs to be a reminder for the church, but we're just supposed to love other people because God loves them. Like God mm-hmm. loves those other people, like our neighbor that drives us nuts or that person, okay. At Starbucks, that's really loudly talking on the cell phone while everyone else is trying to, you know, work on their. all the people that drive us nuts. God loves that person, that that person we think is evil. God loves that person. That's sometimes a tough pill to swallow for, yeah. for us church folk.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think even, you know, the parable you mentioned of the Good Samaritan, there's a sense too that. Um, I, I don't know if he's saying that the Samaritan is the neighbor as much as he's saying the man in the ditch that you've passed over is the neighbor.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. And,
1: um, and so it's like, okay, Levite and priest, it's the one that you've already passed. Yeah, um, and that's a sort of a scathing indictment, and um, and so the church needs to be able to hear that too. Like those that we've already passed over and looked over, I think sometimes when I talk with churches about um, young adults, and sometimes you know even answer the questions of churches asking like, okay, so what do we do? How do we how do we get young adults in our church? And usually I look at these congregations and I say, hey, you actually already have them. They're just not the they're just not the people that you are thinking of. They're not the like college graduates that move back home and already have a full time steady job and have gotten married and, you know, have this really steady life and are gonna be on track to be on your church board in four years. Um, you know, you've got like young adults who maybe um have just returned from the military or never went to college or um, you know, are were pregnant at the age of seventeen and are still trying to raise their kid in the church and you know, you, like you probably have young adults. Uh, and instead of thinking, how do we get the young adults that aren't here? How do we get the, you know, um, sort of more kind of stereotypical, either young adults that we think look like uh, our parents' generation when they were young adults, or even the the young adults that we think of being the educated middle class, um, you know, avocado toast eaters, right? <laughs> so to go back to your stereotypes, right? Like, <laughs> There's a lot of young adults that do not fit that stereotype no. who are overlook who are already in a lot of churches, but they're sort of the odd ducks that nobody thinks like yes, these are the young adults that we want. What if we were to love in and invest in those folks that are already there that, mm. that you know that in maybe some different strange ways, love the church and wish that they were more loved by the church and to see what God might produce and fruit from that rather than trying to figure out how we get? the folks that look like the models on the iPhone commercials into our
0: church right <laughs> yeah well and i think that will take a shift in not only how pastors pastor but how congregants you know lay leaders or just generally i mean we believe in the priesthood of all all believers how how we are equipping people for evangelism for discipleship for for just loving well so much of that seems to be built on this oh once they're here and they have dressed right and they combed their hair and they covered mm-hmm. up their tattoos. And they, you know, then we can, that, then I'll sit at the table with them and, and eat with them. But, yeah. but I think it obviously it, it should start at the top, but it doesn't solely hinge on how the pastor pastors. Um, but it might, it might actually be a step before that it might be, you know, the boards maybe entertaining who they call as their next pastor. What is that going to look like? Cause, cause we do <clears throat> so much of, It is fear-mongering, and and I know maybe not always the best to to just induce anxiety, but there are changes that will happen in the church just by necessity because we have an aging clergy base. The average age is is getting up there in age, um, Mm -hmm. and that will that'll be a necessary shift that happens just due to the fact that there will no longer be some of those pastors pastoring for any number of reasons. So what the pastor looks like, what the church looks like, how, how we engage with the culture around us, how we do things like cultural exegesis, trying to actually get to know the people that are maybe on the periphery in our churches or in our communities and how, how we best live out the great commission, how we show them love, how we love our neighbors there's going to be some necessary shifts. And what's funny is, I mean, there's kind of like the elephant in the room in a lot of these conversations, especially we've had a number of these conversations on the podcast already, but I mean, we as a denomination seem to have on on paper and writing the tools necessary for some of these shifts to take place to, to maybe have more diverse leadership, but for whatever reason, that doesn't always pan out. I mean, mm. on paper, Shauna, you're a woman, we fully support you in ministry. But unfortunately, I know for a fact, it's not because I know anything deep and dark about your current life situation, but because I have uh, enough female pastor friends that that becomes suddenly the stumbling block, because Mm -hmm. there's this, let's cling to the past of how things were done and try to force force uh, either pastors or the next generation into these molds that are rooted in modernity or whatever they're rooted in. Um, and that I, I don't I don't know exactly what to do about that. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm a male, I'm white, I'm, I'm not going to have some of those struggles. But as a young female leader, I mean, it's probably not something you need to be educated on to, to cast vision to dream dreams about what the church could be. But how do we how do we approach those conversations when when it comes to living out our pastoral role as disciple or an equipper of the saints?
1: Yeah. Um, man. So a couple of things that I'm thinking through in response to that one is that, um, Oh, and this is so hard to say because I think for every young pastor, they're coming from such a different place, but, um, to just be careful of the fruit that it produces in your soul, um, to be, oh, to constantly be asking about you know, where is the position for you, as opposed to asking, where is the position for somebody else, right? And so, um, like, you know, I'm at this place as as a woman, yeah, there's been a ton of obstacles and challenging things for me in ministry, and still are in very many ways. Um, but, you know, I, I try now to turn my focus to Man, how do I um, how do I empower some of the young women who are coming up through Tribeca? How do I make sure that there's going to be places for them and that the church is ready to receive the gifts of God in them? Um, how do I make space for um, yeah, women of color and, uh, and and to to you know begin talking about issues of race and some of those other things? Um, so just be and, and partly just to be careful of the fruit that it produces in my own life when I become. And, and partly, uh, like, I'm at a place, too, in my life where I have to recognize I'm just, there have been so many doors open for me, even though there have been a lot of challenges. Like you mentioned, my, my father is a district superintendent in the Church of Nazarene, <laughs> and uh, I'm educated, um, you know, I've been educated in Nazarene institutions and have had some amazing champions in both of those institutions um, that, have, that have paved the way and that have opened a lot of doors. And so, um, you know, now then for me to be thinking, how do I turn that back out um, has been, has been really important. Um, Yeah. And uh, I think what, one of the metaphors that has been really helpful for me in pastoral ministry and sort of changing some of this, and and I, and I truly think that if more of the church were um, to kind of embrace a little bit of a different perspective on this, it could be really healthy and healing, but. And for so long, you know, I think that the church leadership model has been really influenced by um, the the image of pastor as um, shepherd, which is biblical and so powerful. And there's a lot of really amazing stuff in there. I've preached plenty of sermons on John 10. I think it's a really powerful image. Um, But the shepherd model sort of assumes that you've got like this Uh, one leader who has solidified kind of uh, power and leadership authority and who knows the way, right? Like this one leader who knows the way to green pastures and who knows the way to the stream. And as long as all of you ignorant sheep will just follow along, (laughs) then everything will be okay. And so what's happened then is we have leadership structures in the church um, that are very top-down hierarchical. Yeah. Um. And and not I think and not because of what the biblical metaphor does with shepherd. Like in Revelation chapter seven, it actually talks about the shepherd is also the lamb who was slain. Right. So yeah. like the idea that the shepherd would become one of the sheep and be slain. Like this is very different than sort of the CEO shepherd image that we have. Um. And so I, I think that just what our culture in this moment has done with the shepherd metaphor has led to some really unhealthy and hierarchical practices in church leadership. Um, And so, you know, I I mentioned to you before the podcast started, but one of the metaphors that I've really been um, thinking about a lot lately is the metaphor of pastor as midwife. And if, what, what if we didn't think about like this being about us and what we are, um, you know, where we're going to lead the church and follow me, I know the way, but rather trusting that the spirit of God is at work birthing something new and that we need to be attentive to the cries of pain and the sounds of joy. And we need to be attentive to, um, yeah, yeah, where new life is springing um, and how to to help and, and coach the church into um, birthing something new in the life of God. Uh, I, I just think that could be really powerful. Um, and I, I really think that if we, that we need a, an imagination change, you know, not even just so much um, needing to change. Um, I, yeah, like structures, practices, sure. There's a ton of stuff that needs to change. But if we at this point, 2019, we look and say, how is it that we still haven't, you know, elected more DSs that are women or people of color? Like, how is it that this isn't happening? And how? Well, we don't, we don't have an imagination for it, right? <laughs> like, how is it that local churches are still turning away women and saying, no, I won't let a woman be my senior pastor? And like. We, need it. we don't have the imagination for it. And so until the imagination changes, um, I just don't know if we're going to be able to embrace some of the other structural changes that really desperately need to happen. Um, and could there be some structural changes that could help us with the imagination shift? Sure, definitely. Um, but to, to understand that it's kind of a both-and process. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, so much of what I've experienced has been trying not to take it personally, but realizing I'm going to disappoint people. Um, and understand that they have an expectation for pastor that I don't think they should have, (laughs) but that doesn't mean they're not going to have it. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to disappoint them when I don't live up to that expectation. Um, you know, one of the most common examples we have shared is, Hey, pastor, I think you should do this. Like, um, I don't have time to take on another thing, but I'll totally support you in doing that. And, you know the just the the uh, I guess the imagination is that oh if I have a good enough idea pastor because they're shepherd because of how our hierarchy is structured maybe we'll start doing this and I'll get some sort of you know mm. I, I don't know like credit I'll I'll get a shout out for it or and that's probably not the motivation but you know it's just like that's that's the structure that's in place is if you have a good idea, bring it to the pastor, pastor approves it. Yeah. Um, but in the midwife model, I get, I'm trying to kind of process this for myself. So I guess you can tell me if I'm way off or not. And I'm about to have a child. It's not the same. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a C-section. It's not going to be a midwife thing, but, but we've gone through labor with our first and second child. Their second child ended up being an emergency C-section, which is a, oh, whole, wow. a whole other scary story. My my wife really needs to not get pregnant ever again. But, um, <laughs> but anyways, when you're there, when, when you know, for me, I'm going to speak for my first person, like when my wife is laboring, like, I don't feel her labor pains, but I can at least empathize that there is some significance going on in her yeah. life, whether it's because she's breaking my hand or because she says, I need this, I need that. Why did you give me this? Why? And there's just like a whole host of things being experienced, but that midwife relationship – I wasn't her midwife, but in some way I can kind of appreciate maybe what you're saying is that there needs to be this closeness, this this very um, deep relational aspect to how pastors pastor in a way that is kind of reciprocated back and forth because obviously – the reason my wife had me so close is because of the the relationship we already had with one another. Yeah. Right. And you're not going to just have someone be your placeholder spouse in that moment and just, <laughs> Oh, someone off the street. Yeah, sure. Tell me, instruct me in the ways of how to breathe in and out because we went to the Lama's class together or whatever that stuff's called. But, but yeah, a yeah. midwife is someone you're obviously you have a foster relationship with. There's a mutual trust there so that if, you know if the midwife says we need to do this the the person in labor is like yeah i trust you i know mm-hmm. you i get what you're talking about but then at the same time what's interesting for me about this kind of analogy or metaphor is that what really is happening is that equipping of the saints because the midwife is not the one in labor giving birth
1: exactly but,
0: but they're right there for that birth of that yeah. new thing that's and the coming baby's to life not
1: yours yeah you know? like, yeah you you don't claim it. You don't own it. The baby's not yours. It's something with a life all of its own yes, that and- you want to flourish and thrive. And do you need to be well-trained? Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> do you need to know some things and technique and biology? Like, yeah, you do um but that doesn't that doesn't make it yours and uh and to trust it like this is a work that only God can do this is a miracle of new life huh. and truly to anticipate something miraculous that only yeah. God can do i think about you know for me when both of my kids were born we we worked with midwives and have some crazy stories but there was a sense in which like there were points in the process and of course birth is such a huge theme throughout scripture from beginning to end it's tons of birth imagery and and metaphor and um and you know but with both of my kids there was this point in which i really thought like i don't know if i can endure this pain right (laughs) um but the midwife tells you yes you can yes you can i've seen this a million times like trust me i know that it's getting better i know that new life is coming and I trusted her because she she knew this <laughs> innately, and uh, yeah, and-, and there was a sense in which I knew it innately too. And I needed somebody to cheer me along. Oh. I think that in these days with the church, you, you talk about changes that need to happen to be able to embrace, you know, the millennial generation, Generation Z, whatever's coming next. And I think part of the problem is we don't like pain, right? And so no. we don't want to make changes that are painful because we assume that pain is bad. Um, when I think the pastor as midwife intuitively knows that pain actually sometimes can lead to great joy. Yeah, um, It, it can might lead be necessary. To miracle. Yeah, exactly. It might be necessary to birth something new and to not uh-huh. run away from the pain, but to know the difference, to know the sounds of pain and agony and when that pain could be leading to new life and when that pain is actually something that is is quite serious that needs intervention. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that the, a metaphor, imagination change like that could be really powerful in the life of the church.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you, that metaphor is going to bounce around in my head, especially since it's very real and applicable to my current yeah, life circumstances. Is.
1: Well, and I think I'm actually going to, my doctor of ministry program, I might be writing uh, some more on it. So if, if I do, I'll, I'll let you know.
0: That's awesome. So we ask every guest as we close the podcast to give us maybe a final thought. And for you, this metaphor is uh is still bouncing around in my head so i'm still stuck on it um what what would you suggest like if there's maybe maybe we have a young pastor listening maybe they're male maybe they're female i maybe it doesn't matter it's, maybe we have someone that's a lay leader or just a lay person in the church like what is just perhaps a simple shift in having that imagination shift i guess to to start seeing seeing the church's uh efforts as a midwife like what what's a, something simple that that could be just one small step in that direction that we could do today as the church that would yeah. help us maybe take even more incremental steps in the future.
1: I think listen to somebody else, listen to, um, listen for the voice of God in somebody else, like to ask someone else, what do you think God is up to? What do you think, um, scripture saying, what do you think, you know, it's like to listen for the voice of God in someone else other than ourselves. Um, I think is is really powerful and profound. So I'm learning to read scripture with groups of people and to always ask, what do you hear? Um, what do you right. hear the spirit is saying? Um, and to trust and expect that God is at work in others. Hmm. Um, and even to sometimes sit down with with folks that do not profess a faith in Jesus Christ and to ask them like, you know, what's the, like, do you think God's up to anything in this world? Trust me, you would be really surprised at the answers. Interesting. I asked that of a student who has no faith at all and doesn't, you know, profess to have any faith. And, and, uh, and he even said at the beginning of the conversation, he's like, you know, I don't believe in God. Right. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And then I said, but do you think God's up to anything? Oh man, he just like rattled <laughs> off all this that's crazy. Man, and I had, you know, it it, it was really wild. Um, and so, yeah, to to begin asking that question and assuming that God is at work in the lives of the people that God intimately and lovingly created, um, I think is a really great place to start.
0: Well, Shauna, that's great. I love it. It's going to be bouncing around in my head, and I'll be welcoming a fourth child into the world, and oh, I'll probably congrats. be seeing. Crazy parallels of that happening, but yeah,
1: look for it.
0: Yeah, I will be slow to speak and quick to listen. I think James said something about that. Something, but. <laughs> Shauna. Thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, I greatly fun. appreciate it. Thanks for having it, me. Yeah, this has been something that's probably going to stick with me, obviously for all the reasons I shared above. But but thanks so much. I, I appreciate it. Cool, man. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to catch up with us on Facebook at the Millennial Pastor. On Instagram at RevMillennial, and on Twitter with the same handle, I believe. Actually, it might be the Millennial Pastor on Instagram. I don't know. It's in the link in the description. But if you want to hear more about what Millennials think, if you'd like hearing the faith based work they're doing in culture, then please join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your one and only host this week, and my name is Josiah. Until next time, we'll see you later.